This is Bill Munhausen with another edition of What Makes Sense, playing on Key Radio in the Faith and Religion Hour. I wonder about that at times, since my episodes tend to be focused on practical matters, but there are no perfect pigeonholes for truth. Today I will be exploring a smattering of what might be called current events, but are really timeless observations. We, the people of Camden County, announced this week that their organization is being dissolved due to lack of involvement of the part of their members. The decision is symptomatic of a bigger picture in American society, one which we need to oppose and correct. The conservative movement has hit an odd tipping point, thriving at the national level but collapsing locally. It's a phenomenon that is difficult to explain. The vision of conservatism is to restore the foundational principle of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The group's name, We the People, was derived from that vision. That group's members were energized during the election season, which essentially ended after the primaries, but then they felt no need to gather. You might say they experienced victory, but they also settled into individual resignation, knowing they had elected good people in the past, but it didn't make government better. The resulting malaise can be distilled down to one question. What do patriots do during peacetime once the election season is over? Conversely, the apparent popularity of conservatism at the national level, especially in regard to the media, reflects the love Americans have for celebrity coupled with the love peacetime conservatives have to commiserate, literally to be miserable together. National media personalities highlight stories about corruption and evil intentions, and viewers get to yell at their media devices and revel, ironically, at how bad it is. But at the end of the day, in our own community, patriots feel helpless. We, the people, not the organization, but we, the actual people, have lost heart that American government is really of, by, and for us. I believe it is a feeling that is not just conservative, but is bipartisan and pervasive. Nevertheless, I don't care about the communists. I want to address conservatives. We have allowed conservatism to morph into an anti-government ideology. The unfortunate result is that we abandon our government of, by, and for the people to the elitists who wish to take over. Let me relate an example. I saw a post on Facebook by Missouri Moms Against Common Core saying, Make no mistake, Common Core agenda has not gone away, it's only getting started. It's now getting recycled into the school choice narrative. It isn't the answer, it is the root. Because I was a homeschool dad, have taught homeschool classes, and have a daughter who operates a homeschool tutoring organization, and helped craft a proposal that might be categorized as school choice, I felt an obligation to interject. The the Missouri Moms Group is conservative and largely Christian. Their mission statement indicates they are opposed to Common Core, yet they seem adamantly opposed to correcting the system that promotes Common Core. Following is how the dialogue went. Here is what I wrote in response to their post. There is school choice, and then there is real school choice. Our plan intercepts tax money at the local level before it ever gets to the Department of Education. 
We call it the Election Diversity Act. Allow more options to use existing public funding for K-12 education. Overview. The Missouri Constitution mandates publicly funded education for all Missouri children. But public schools are only one way to provide such education. The Education Diversity Act allows families of school-aged children to opt out of public school while still receiving their fair share of public funding for the alternative schooling they choose. Each child's fair share is determined by dividing the public funding provided to a school district by the total number of school-aged children in the district. If a family chooses to opt out of public school, their fair share for each of their school-aged children is deposited each year into a Uniform Gift to Minors account, UGMA, for each child with the parents as custodians. Parents of a school-aged child must opt out in writing by a letter filed with the county clerk documenting a family's decision to opt out of public school, and their child's status will remain that way unless they explicitly change it. Receipt of the opt-out letter will signal county officials to redirect public funding for the affected child to their UGMA account at the time of the next distribution of funds to the school district. The custodian of a UGMA has complete freedom to use the funds for any educational options that meet the needs of the child. Unspent funds revert to the child's control upon attaining the age of 18 to provide each child a start in life once their K-12 education is completed. My post went on to explain the benefits of such a plan and a few of the details regarding how UGMA funds could be spent and how government could verify it. I intended my post to be a high-level summary, recognizing that details would have to be included to protect families while also making them accountable. After all, both families and government are capable of wrongdoing. The first response came as follows. Quote, what requirements are you proposing to fall upon the parents? Can a homeschool parent use the funds for religious-based materials? Does anyone approve curriculum choices or lesson plans? Are standardized tests mandated? The current ESA program in Missouri requires all of that, plus background checks for every adult in the home and more. How is this program different? Can you guarantee zero additional regulation for homeschool families? All good questions, but the conversation quickly went downhill. The next one said, I disagree respectfully. Whenever they say respectfully, it's rarely respectful. I pay school taxes, so does my 77-year-old mother, and we do not use a single service from the government schools. The point here is that it is naive to believe that any government money will come without strings attached. Take a look at the current regulations that apply to homeschoolers under the ESA. We do not want to register with anyone. We do not want oversight or supervision from anyone. We oppose this in the strongest terms. People choose not to homeschool out of fear. It is not expensive to homeschool. There do not have to be financial barriers. You can homeschool with nothing more than a library card if needed. It is not the taxpayer's job to support the education of my children, period. And another response. This is all sounds great, but as a homeschool parent whose adult children are now homeschooling their kids, 
What guarantee is there that homeschool parents who choose a religious-based curriculum will still be able to use the funding for their purchases? I foresee a clause that specifically forbids the use of the money for religious-based curriculum and also forbids, upon graduation from 12th grade, the use of that money to attend a religious college. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm 70 and many years of experience have caused my skepticism for anything government-related. And yet another. Once homeschool kids have the option to use the money for their education freedom with zero strings attached, that will be real choice. That, however, will never happen. The new school choice movement is all about crushing public ed to redirect public tax dollars to private, for-profit education options like Google, Facebook, and Amazon, to name a few. Charter schools now are not held to the same standard as public education. Thus, it looks like a wonderful option to many. DESE has done this by design. They are the devil in the details. Once they have crushed public ed and publicly elected boards, all education will be truly privatized, and we will then understand what taxation without representation means. I'm not sure I understand all of that, but there it is. To these I replied, You can either do something or do nothing. There is currently zero security for homeschoolers. This gives homeschoolers public funds with no strings attached by bypassing DESE. The wording of the final legislation would specify the freedom of parents to choose the curricula of their choice. One person asked what I meant by zero security, claiming they had complete autonomy in homeschooling. My response was that government already regulates homeschooling and can do more if parents remain uninvolved. I'm sure the comments highlighted don't reflect the views of all members of this group. I'm sure most of them truly are working against Common Core by working in the public sector to correct public education. But these few represent the purely anti-government ideology of many conservatives. They are so disillusioned by government corruption that they reject the foundational conservative position of government by and for the people. According to this principle, government is only as corrupt as we allow it to be. We must not allow discouragement to stop us from continuing to enlist government to do good. This is the American way. We have a responsibility to both our fellow citizens and the next generation to make government responsive to the will and needs of the people. Moving on, here is another quick story about government control and unintended consequences and the proper response. My friend Ashley Hayes owns a food truck and was being prohibited from setting up in Eldon. It isn't because Eldon officials want to restrict freedom. Instead, their intent was to protect businesses from what might be called intrusive competition, such as a mobile food vendor setting up in front of an established business restaurant with the intent to steal their business. City ordinance prohibited Ashley's food truck from being within 250 feet of an existing food-related business, in this case a Chinese restaurant. Ashley's Barista Go sells coffee-related beverages, hardly the sort of thing that conflicts with a Chinese restaurant, and clearly not what the city of Eldon intended to regulate. 
It shows you how so much of government overreach involves the law gone wrong. Central planning, i.e. socialism, doesn't work because the planners are unable to anticipate every contingency. The example also illustrates what people must do. Rather than give up or otherwise submit to wrongful decisions, go and reason with the people in charge. In many cases, they will see the problem and work at resolving it. If you don't get immediate satisfaction, work through the channels of government to make changes. Always remember that all government is our government, and our responsibility is to direct government for the common good. Conservatives sometimes look at municipal government through the lens of the United States Constitution, forgetting that cities have very different needs. Municipalities depend primarily on sales and property taxes, so they have a vested interest in activities generating revenue through those sources. We might not like those activities, but it helps to understand them and even be a little tolerant. Lake Expo ran a story recently about a proposed apartment complex in Osage Beach and the resulting controversy. City officials see it as a no-brainer. The vacant land where the development will occur produces little property tax revenue and no sales tax revenue. So they propose giving the developer the incentive of reduced property tax for 20 years. Unfortunately, it isn't just a deal between the city and the developer. Other developers might justifiably complain that they didn't get the same deal for their projects. Citizens might complain that city services won't be funded to compensate for the impact of the new development. School board president Gail Griswold testified regarding the impact on schools, which will see an increase in student population with no increase in revenue to the school district. When I read about these arguments, I can easily be lured into central planner mode, trying to figure out what would be fair to all parties, but the truth is it can't be done. The only plan that doesn't adversely affect the recipients of tax revenue is for the developer to pay taxes and for city planners to use non-financial incentives to bring the developers on board. It seems too easy to state what also seems obvious. Any development will require investment by the city and impacts on other entities like the schools. Foregoing tax revenue while incurring new costs doesn't make sense if all you have to gain is increased revenue years from now. It's the lure of money that is the root of so many evils. It's not the money itself. And city officials sometimes are lured by the potential and don't see the obvious expense at hand. Moving on, here is another quick story about government control and unintended consequences and the proper response. My friend Ashley Hayes owns a food truck and was being prohibited from setting up in Eldon. It isn't because Eldon officials want to restrict freedom. Instead, their intent was to protect businesses from what might be called intrusive competition, such as a mobile food vendor setting up in front of an established business restaurant with the intent to steal their business. City ordinance prohibited Ashley's food truck from being within 250 feet of an existing food-related business. 
in this case a Chinese restaurant. Ashley's Barista Go sells coffee-related beverages, hardly the sort of thing that conflicts with a Chinese restaurant, and clearly not what the city of Eldon intended to regulate. It shows you how so much of government overreach involves the law gone wrong. Central planning, i.e. socialism, doesn't work because the planners are unable to anticipate every contingency. The example also illustrates what people must do. Rather than give up or otherwise submit to wrongful decisions, go and reason with the people in charge. In many cases, they will see the problem and work at resolving it. If you don't get immediate satisfaction, work through the channels of government to make changes. Always remember that all government is our government, and our responsibility is to direct government for the common good. I'd like to turn now to an article by Janice Ellis with the Missouri Independent. Ellis reports a recent study finding that social media has become a primary source of information just as much as the traditional press, regardless of whether the content is reliable or not. She refers to social media as the fifth estate, the fourth estate being traditional journalism. Some would say that social media platforms are good and convenient ways to stay connected with family and friends. Others might say they are good for entertainment and a marketplace to sell products and services. Still others see the platforms as readily accessible channels for well-intentioned political influence and social expression. Arguably, social media as the fifth estate is becoming just as influential as the traditional press in contemporary society, not only in the United States, but across the world, especially when it comes to disseminating information and influencing public opinion and actions quickly. From this introduction, Ellis moves on to the central theme of her article, the need to control this new media, which in her opinion plays loose with the truth and facts, allowing misinformation and disinformation to be posted at will, and disseminated instantly. If there are rules and regulations, she says, when it comes to posting false, hateful, and destructive content, they are often not enforced until after the unthinkable damage and harm have occurred. Even then, the surveillance and enforcement may be sporadic or short-lived. For some reason, Ellis thinks that speech on social media is different from traditional journalism. But nobody really believes that. Print journalists and network news people are as biased as anyone. They may have rules differentiating between editorializing and news reporting, but the lines are constantly blurred. Then Ellis goes on to say, Former President Donald Trump was permanently banned from Twitter because of false and dangerous tweets. Well, false and dangerous according to who? But we know that wasn't why President Trump was banned from Twitter. Trump was banned because he had millions of followers who agreed with his opinions. Trump's tweets resonated with people because they rejected the fact-finders and the liberal establishment that refused to speak plainly. Regardless of whether you agree with that, Trump was banned because Twitter doesn't need to honor the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution because Twitter is a private corporation that has the right to exercise its freedom to reject free speech. 
President Trump reminded us during his four years of persecution that they weren't just coming for him, but were coming for us also. Ellis reveals that when she writes, how many political extremists use social media platforms to peddle hate speech, conspiracy theories that mislead some ill-informed, unsuspecting public, end quote. Free speech is ultimately the right to be wrong, and certainly wrong opinions get spoken from time to time, but that has been the American system. Even God allows humanity the free will to speak and do wrong. That is the price to be paid to allow the freedom so that truth can also be spoken, and no human arbiters have the wisdom to interfere in any wise way. Let me pivot now to an important related lesson from the Bible. It's a parable about property rights and ownership and the obligation of people who never created but merely occupy. Mark 12, 1-2 reads, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Mark 12, 3-9 continues, But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? The parable is obviously about the kingdom of God. The man who built a vineyard is a symbol for God who created all things. The tenants represent mankind who collectively enjoy the fruits of God's creation and owe him a debt. After all, the tenants didn't build anything but enjoy the use of it at God's pleasure. Over the centuries, God sent his prophets to remind mankind of their obligation, but the prophets were mistreated. Finally, God sent his son who was killed. The attitude of humanity, especially in modern times, is forget about God. We can take what he built and use it for our own pleasure. Yes, it's a parable about God, but was, as with any great parable, we can also apply the lesson to the people made in his image. The rejection of property ownership and sovereignty is very consistent with the philosophy of socialism. Yes, socialist ideas are truly that ancient. Socialists have never been able to create anything from scratch. The pattern of socialism since its inception has been to steal what they didn't create, beginning with the Russian Revolution. Tsarist Russia was certainly not a perfect government, but it did govern a civilized European society. When the socialists took over by violent revolution, instead of directly correcting whatever evils the Tsarist regime perpetrated, they set about implementing their ideology. 
things got ugly pretty fast. Because their ideology was against private ownership, the socialists waged war against their own people, even the peasant farmers that fed the nation. Millions died because ideology superseded concern for the well-being of citizens. Something similar happened when socialists seized control of China with a twist. The Chinese communists saw that the implementation of socialist ideology wasn't producing results, so they pivoted to develop a hybrid system blending corporatism with government ownership and management. Although the pivot produced results for the last 30 years, the inadequacy of central planning introduced such unintended consequences as an aging demographic due to low birth rate and real estate speculation as a false means to acquire wealth. Their hybrid system is heading toward a collapse. For the last few decades, it has been America's turn to deal with socialist ideology. Socialists decided that their failures in the past were not due to bad ideas, but due to taking over poor nations. So they decided to seize the most prosperous and powerful nation in the world, the United States. What we've been seeing in America is not the failure of capitalism and free enterprise, but the struggle of a system that is burdened by the weight of socialist mutations. We see it in such things as small towns like Eldon interfering with the location of a food truck, or in Osage Beach officials stirring the pot of economic growth by making tax deals with developers that harm everyone who depends on public funds. And yes, we see it in lovers of constitutional government who no longer believe they can depend on their fellow citizens to restore the foundational principles of American free enterprise and ingenuity. Notice in the parable that Jesus ends with a question. What, then, will the owner of the vineyard do? He cleverly allows reasonable people to answer the question for themselves. Jesus knows they are more likely to care about their own conscience more than any command he could give or anyone else could give. Matthew 21:41 records their answer. They said to him, He will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. It's a serious response because the people recognize the severity of the offense. The lesson is all of this is to be aware to notice whenever something is suggested that doesn't align with American principles. Should the population be forced to receive a particular medication? Should hairdressers have to be licensed by the state? Should an executive order override an act of legislature? Can government forgive the loans of college students? Should government confiscate your house if you can't pay a tax? We've been allowing government to go wrong for a long time, so it isn't possible to do an immediate 180, but you at least get an idea of where government can be challenged to reconsider its practices. In a government by and for the people, it is our duty to challenge elected officials to be consistent in devising and enforcing the law. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good.